I'm going to be in Romans 9 in just a minute, but I want to start with a quote uh, that uh, some of you may have heard from recent weeks. It came from the recently elected senator from Georgia, Raphael Warnock, who happens to also be a, a pastor, and, and he said this. I think we have a slide. He said, the meaning of Easter, he tweeted this, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd have to ask what exactly does that mean? But then he goes on and says, whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves, end quote. Now, our passage this morning is going to also look at this, object, uh, this, this issue of being saved and how one may be saved, but it's going to offer you a somewhat different perspective on the matter. Let's look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." So the basic idea being communicated in that passage is that there are a whole bunch of irreligious Gentiles who had obtained the Holy Grail, this thing Paul calls the righteousness of God, while a whole bunch of very zealous, very religious Jews were missing out. And, and the problem for those Jews, he says, uh, as identified by Paul here, was that they misunderstood the way to obtain that right standing with God. They, they had uh, thought that it could only come through a careful adherence to the rules, to the law of a holy God. They were trying to, so very hard to climb a ladder of religious exercises, not knowing all the time, the ladder was actually on the wrong wall. And so Paul says in verse 32 of what we read, they did not pursue it by faith, but though as, it, as though it were by works. And then in verse 3 of chapter 10, not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So the apostle is laboring here, as he does elsewhere in his writings, to make this point that good standing with God, which is also known in his writings as righteousness, is unobtainable by human effort, but it may be reached by putting faith in another, namely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a conversation uh, about Disney World came up recently for Beth and me and one of our small groups, and someone in that group shared a story about how they managed to obtain special privileges in the Magic Kingdom. How many of you have been to the Magic Kingdom in Orlando or maybe in Anaheim? Most of you have been at some point in your, in, in your life. Beth urged me to share our own story of experience like that, which goes like this. In 1995, our family went on what was uh, essentially our dream vacation. Now, at this time in our lives, our children were young, and because our second child uh, had developed leukemia, we were gifted by the American Cancer Society six years, six years 
of free passes to Disney World for the entire family. Once a year, we could all go, uh, and it was covered. So that's what we did every year. We packed up our kids and drove an hour and a half to Disney World and enjoyed a day together, except Dad didn't really enjoy it that much, to be honest with you. For me, Disney meant a long, tiring day in the heat and in long lines. <laughs> Exhausting. But after uh, five years of doing this, I said, hey, let's splurge and let's do Disney right. Let's get a place there. And we, we got a wilderness home uh, that we stayed in. And we'll spend the night there and we'll do Disney right, which for me meant you go in the morning. Then uh, middle of the day, you go home, you rest up, you uh, get a nap, and then you go back in the cooler part of the evening. And that was really spectacular. Our kids love Disney World. And as dad, that's the way I wanted to do it. Now, this one particular year, this last year of the six, we, we got our wilderness home, and, and we were all so excited that we were going to be at the front of the line. We were going to be right there when they opened the ropes. They took down the ropes, and you could run into the Magic Kingdom, and we were going to be on the first boat down Splash Mountain. That was how the family voted. That's what we were going to do first, Splash Mountain. <laughs> so we run in, as we approach Frontierland, where you would find Splash Mountain, there was a man by the uh, attraction yelling out that Splash Mountain was closed for repairs. Now, I apparently stopped in my tracks, and I, I caught this look that uh, was obviously a look of great despair and disappointment so much so that I was approached by an employee of the park <laughs> who wanted to know what was wrong. <laughs> and I said, oh, our kids so much wanted to be on the first boat down Splash Mountain, and this is like our third disappointment on this trip and all of that. And so I'm just trying to regroup and figure out what to do now. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. It'll be open later this afternoon. I uh, hope you can still enjoy your day at the park. So we walked off to something like Peter Pan's Wild Ride. It's a piddly little ride, Peter Pan's Wild Ride or something. <laughs> and we got on that, and, and then we got off that. And the man that had, a, had, a, had a, a spoken to me uh, at, at Splash Mountain was waiting for us as we got off the ride. And, and, and he came to me and he said, Sir, my name is Bill. I'm a supervisor here at the park, and, and I'm committed to making sure your family has a good day here at the Magic Kingdom. And here's what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna lead you and your kids to the front of the line at any ride they wanna go on. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, sounds good. <laughs> uh, let's do Dumbo's flight. Don't ask me why, but that always has a long line. So we get the Dumbo's flight. We go right past the 80 people in line to the front of the line. We get on Dumbo. We get off. What's next? Well, by then, the line for the Lion King show was getting long. So we said, let's do that. So he took us past 150 people to the front of the line for the Lion King show. We did the Lion King show. We get out of the show. He's there waiting for us. What next? Grand Prix Raceway. Always a big line there. Let's go there. So we go to the Grand Prix Raceway. The kids uh, get on their little cars and do their thing, and uh, we get off that ride, and by then it's like 11 o'clock, and the ice cream carts were now out, and he said to us, hey, look, ice cream carts, let's have your kids take whatever they want. <laughs> I got chocolate bonbons. Uh, let me tell you, that is the way to do Disney World. The man's name, I don't know that I said this, his name was Bill. 
So we did Disney, and he actually went on the rides with us. When we went on Grand Prix Raceway, he was in the car with our, with our youngest, uh, Sharon. We have videotape of Bill and Sharon uh, in the car at the Grand Prix Raceway. Good story. Can I build a sermon around that? <laughs> Let's see if I can connect it to our passage and the important uh, subject we're looking at today. Here's what I want you to think about with me. Who got us special entrance into all of those attractions at Disney World, including the ice cream cart? Was it our good looks? Was it our uh, good behavior? No, no. It really had nothing to do with us and who we were. The folks running the rides didn't look at us and say, oh, look, it's the pastor's family. Let's let them come up to the front of the line. No, no, our entrance was obtained only through Bill. We got in because we were with Bill. Bill became our entrance, if you will. He became our way. Now, if I were to go back to Disney World now and try to waltz right onto the rides in front of everybody else, someone would say, uh, sir, what do you think you're doing trying to get in the front of, of the line, and what should I say? Well, you should let me up to the front of the line because I'm Dan Henley, pastor of North Park Church in Wexford, Pennsylvania. I have a doctorate of ministry from Reformed Theological Seminary, Bachelor of Arts from the University of Florida, and I do my best to live right and treat others like I want to be treated. What would I get for all of that? Not a thing. Without Bill, I'm nowhere. And with Bill, what I had done and who I was made no difference, did it? Our status in the Magic Kingdom that special day had nothing to do with us. It was all about Bill. Now, to get that in your head, say that with me. It was all about Bill. Okay, that's swell. But is there a great spiritual point to be made? Absolutely there is. I want to tell you a story about a time in my life when I went on a sabbatical some years back. And uh, as part of my sabbatical, I decided I wanted to do spiritual perspective surveys. And so I created a survey to give to people, and I approached them cold turkey in malls and airports and especially college campuses and I would ask them for 15 minutes of their time. I would actually give them $5 for 15 minutes of their time to ask them a battery of questions about their spiritual perspectives. I, I spoke to over 100 people. But the most important, and, and I asked them this, you know, probably about a dozen questions. But the most important question, I think, that I put to each one of them was this one. I would say, supposing you were to die and meet God even if you don't happen to believe in him, imagine this. Supposing you were to go, you were to die and to meet God, and, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? <clears throat> now, this is called a diagnostic question because the answer someone gives sort of diagnoses or exposes how they think about what makes them right with God. It displays what this person believes makes them worthy of, of heaven. And what kind of answer do you think I got from people? Well, out of the 102 persons that I interviewed, 79 gave as their answer some form of, I've been good. <laughs> that was their answer. They might have Focused on a different aspect of being good, but that was essentially it. 
Interestingly, 100% of the persons who identified themselves as being non-religious, that was their answer, 100% of the eight people from non-Christian religions, Hindu, Muslim, whatever, that was their answer. But what about those who identified themselves as Christian? And 74 out of 102 did identify themselves in some shape, form, or fashion as a, a, a participant in the Christian church. Of those 74... 50 of them, more than two-thirds, indicated that they would get into heaven because of their good behavior. This 50 included, to my surprise, 100% of those who said they were Roman Catholic. This vast majority, more than two to one, of even so-called Christians, when asked about the way to heaven, were pointing to whom? Themselves. Now, you may think I'm overreacting, but dear friend, I find this horrifying and distressing. I find it so because my Jesus, my Lord, the Christ of this Christianity, said to us so very plainly in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what most of those who call themselves Christians were thinking and even saying out loud is that really good living is the way to get into heaven, and no one comes to the Father except through that. Jesus called himself the door, but when folks are asked how they would get into heaven, they don't generally point to Christ. They do not even mention Jesus. They are pointing to themselves. Now, as a pastor, I find that alarming. One of the biggest surprises in my surveying was how high a percentage, this was a few years ago, but not that long ago, I was surprised by how high a percentage did identify themselves as Christian. My other big surprise was how few of those really grasped the gospel message in any substantive way. Now that term gospel, it's used to refer to certain essential core beliefs of Christianity. It means good news. And the good news is this, that what we, you and I, could not do, which is work our way out of sin's guilt and into the good favor of a holy God, God did by sending Jesus who obeyed in our place, who died in our place, who rose from the dead in our place, so that now if we link ourselves with this Jesus by faith, we can have, get this, we can have his righteousness, his good standing before God. The good news is that you can get into heaven not based upon anything you have done, but based upon what Jesus has done. And this is a totally different conception of the situation than most persons maintain in their head. A common pattern that I saw in my surveying was this. Someone, either a professing Protestant or a professing Catholic, would tell me that they expect to get into heaven based upon their good behavior. And then I would, I would follow up by asking this question. Does Jesus have anything to do with us getting into heaven? And to this question, I heard one of two answers. Some folks just looked puzzled. <laughs> and they admitted that they really didn't know. One Baptist girl, a Baptist girl, said to me that she had no idea what Jesus had to do with us getting into heaven. It's amazing to me that we can live in a world, a society that celebrates Christmas and Easter and Good Friday and somehow miss this, but most apparently have missed it, even though the most recognizable symbol of the Christian faith in our world is a what? It's a cross. And you see crosses all over the place, don't you? 
their own churches and hospitals and cemeteries, their own people's necklaces. They're all over the place, but most people don't grasp the message of the cross. The cross tells us that we cannot get into heaven on our own because we are rotten sinners, but that a perfect Savior has come to pay the penalty for that sin and die in our place to remove the barriers that exist between sinful humans and a holy God and to purchase for us, therefore, a home in heaven. But most don't see the point of Christ's death. What's Christ got to do with it? What does he have to do with it? We don't know. We don't know. But then there was a second, probably larger group of respondents. After hearing them talk about how their goodness will get them into heaven, I asked them, uh, I asked them what Jesus had to do with their eternity, with the issues of heaven and hell and judgment. And they responded by saying, oh, yeah, well, Jesus died for our sins. All right? They knew about that. I found that for many, those were words without any real meaning, but at least they knew to say this. And yet when asked what they were relying on to get them into heaven, what was it that came to their mind? Not Jesus, not the cross, not grace. It was, it was not the good work of Jesus, but their own good work. You see, my friend, uh, when you stand at heaven's door and the question is asked, why should I let you into my heaven? You can point to in one of two directions. You can point toward what you have done, or you can point toward what Christ has done. And I am suggesting to you that the choice of pointing to yourself, that choice will be fatal to your soul then, and it is fatal to your soul today. Even now, many of, many of you are living without freedom. You're living without joy and without power because you think this Christian gig is all about you and how you behave today rather than about Christ and his merit and his sufficiency. Even a lot of us in Bible teaching churches, we may say the right answers with our mouths while we still think that our relationship essentially hinges on how I behaved yesterday. As God gives me aid this morning, I want to seek to jolt you out of that way of seeing. What's wrong with pointing to yourself and to your deeds as the basis for peace with God and entrance to glory? Well, three things, three big problems with that. The first is that you cannot point to yourself because you failed. Are you allowed to say that in 2021? <clears throat> you failed. If you think you passed the test of life that God has set before us, and God should be waiting in heaven for you with his A-plus ready to hand out. You're missing something. You underestimate what God actually expects, the standard that he upholds. He is a holy God beyond your comprehension and, and even says that we must be holy as he is holy. We are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And, and you just are not, not, not even close. What's more, you're way, uh, you are way overestimating your own moral goodness. The opinion of Jesus about you <laughs> is vastly different from the opinion you have about yourself. And the rest of us, we think Jesus is right. Jesus says in Matthew 15 and verse 9, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. That's how he viewed people. This is the stuff that Jesus knows is in you. And so to the apostles labor this point about us, Romans 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they've become useless. None who does good, not even one. So don't claim that you are the great exception. You know, verse 23, all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. You may be slightly better than the guy next to you, but by God's standards, you still fall way short. So please don't point to your own goodness. Now, I don't know if you'll ever actually be asked that question by God about why he should let you into his heaven. I I don't know how this is all going to play out on Judgment Day, but if you are asked that question, and if you intend to tell God that you've been good, do me a favor and at least tell God, you know, there was a preacher back in in the Pittsburgh area who told me not to say this, but, and then you go on ahead and uh, make your claim to being good. But you have been warned. That will not cut it, and the first reason it won't is because you really aren't good. Second reason it is wrong to point to yourself is, and, and to your good living is because righteousness, true righteousness, comes by faith in Christ, not by your own law-keeping. I draw your attention back to where we started in Romans 9. This is the point in verses 31 and 32. Paul says the Jews blew it here. They missed God's plan to provide righteousness by faith in another. And then in chapter 10 and verse 3, They didn't know about God's righteousness. They were seeking to establish their own, and they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In trying hard to be religious or to be righteous by the law, they were actually, interestingly, in rebellion against God, who was directing them to seek righteousness via the gift of His Son. The gospel message is that we can be right with God by simply trusting Jesus. But so many reject that. And they do it to build that house of straw that we talked about for several weeks. Why? Why would we turn away from the gracious provision of God to do our own thing? Well, that's the delusion of pride. And even though, even we who profess faith in Jesus and know our works are not sufficient, hey, brothers and sisters, we so often fall back into this way of thinking so that when we sin, when we blow it, we expect that God is now opposed to us. If you're thinking that way, God's really uh, hostile toward me at the moment. If you're thinking that way, what will you do when you're feeling guilty? Well, you won't turn to God. You won't find cleansing and relief and restoration in His loving arms because you are so full of shame that instead of running to Him, you run from Him. Listen, it's, it's not about your deeds. It's about Jesus. He is the way. He is our covering before God. So it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Come running, running to your Father. Titus 3 verse 4 makes this very plain for us. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. It's about His mercy, not your works. He is the way. The way of God is the way of righteousness by faith. Paul goes on in other parts of Romans. Let's look at a couple of passages from Romans 4. Uh, we read this, verse 1. What, we, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified, that is, made right with God by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for right, as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then in verse 16, for this reason it is by faith that it may be in accordance with what? What's that last word? 
It's by faith so that it makes sense that this is all about the grace of God. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and this is his way. It's his only way of salvation. This is why it is so wrong to claim acceptance based upon your merit. (laughs) Not only do you have no merit, merit is also not the appointed way. Well, the merit of Jesus is. That is the way. Chapter 3 Verse 21 of Romans, Paul says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, key phrase, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. All of sin falls short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. A what? As a gift. That's something Becca and April plan to get today. (laughs) A gift by His grace. This is God's intention. Dear friend, God is offering you a gift. He says, my son has paid the debt. Look to him and all that I have, all the riches that are mine by virtue of my majesty are yours forever. That is God's way, His gracious way. And that is why looking to yourself is so very wrong and so terribly, terribly destructive. Third reason it's wrong to trust in yourself is because of the sufficiency of Jesus. When you say or even when you think that it's all about you, that your relationship to God hinges on your performance, it is an insult to the Savior. It's as if we're pushing Christ out of the way and saying to him, here, Jesus, let let me help you with this salvation thing you're trying to pull off. The message of the New Testament is what we call gospel It's the message of a Savior, and the Savior says this, it is finished. The work is done. Jesus told his friends, John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus says, I can take care of this mortality problem you guys have. Just trust me. Me. And when he rose from the dead himself, he proved himself trustworthy and he proved that his sacrifice at Calvary was accepted. Do you know what this cross thing is all about? Do you know what Jesus was doing when he died? Scriptures tell us that our sin had separated us from God. Remember how Adam and Eve sinned? They got the left foot of fellowship out of the garden. Our sin made us distant from God. It deserves death. Justice, we're told, must be served. Because you sin, someone someone must die. Justice says that would be you. But grace makes room for a substitute. So Jesus comes and pays our debt. He accepts in himself all the just judgment and wrath of God that is due to us for our sin. It was poured out on him at Calvary. The transaction at Calvary was that Christ got my sin and I got his righteousness. As a result, Paul can say in Romans 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus our Lord. Verse 9, same chapter, having been justified by his blood, we're saved from the wrath of God 
through him, through him, through him, not through doing all kinds of nice things to balance out for the bad stuff that we certainly have done. Peace with God comes through Jesus. One more verse, Romans 5, 19. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Who is that one man? Adam. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made sinners. Righteous. The first one man there is Adam, whose sin plunged us all into trouble and left us in need of righteousness. But that righteousness, Paul says, is supplied. But who supplies it? Not you, not me. It is supplied by the one, the second one, and his name is Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one is made righteous but through him. Do you see this? And isn't it wonderful? I know to some of us, the good news is old news because we've heard it all our lives. But dear brothers and sisters, it can never grow boring to us. It's not about you. It's about Christ. Now, often during the surveys that I did with folks, and I would listen to them talk about how God was going to accept them because of their performance, I, I, I wanted to shout, no, <laughs> it's about Christ. Would you join me in saying that? It's about Christ. Again, it's about Christ, the world and the church too. So desperately need to hear this. They don't get it, and I promise you they don't get it, and we need to declare it to them and we also need to declare it continually to ourselves. Even we, who might get the questions right, are prone to fall back into practical legalism, into a practical self-reliance. We, we must preach the gospel then to ourselves and to one another in hopes that finally it may sink in more deeply and more thoroughly and transform us totally. Martin Luther quote to wrap up today. He said this, this truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary it is that we know this article well, teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> we must know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Look around you for a moment. I want you to see some of the heads that need your help in beating the gospel <laughs> into it. And of course, Luther's speaking metaphorically here. We repeat it, we sing about it, we speak of it, we pray of it. And hey, if you're going to have something beat into your head continually, there's nothing better than the gospel of Christ Jesus, who is our sufficiency. It's all, say it with me, it's all about Christ. Let's pray. Good Father, 
We thank you for this very clear word from your word from Romans and these other choice scriptures that we've looked at today. God, it is apparent that the enemy of our souls has sown blinders on so very many that they cannot see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. They cannot comprehend the majesty and miracle that is the substitutionary death of Christ at Calvary. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to speak it to them, to explain it to them, and to apply it to ourselves and to one another in our families and in our churches. Lord, we know that plenty of people have sat under sound preaching for decades that have never gotten this truth. So, Lord, we would ask that your spirit come and illumine our minds that we would see the truth of our failure and, and, and sinfulness, the truth of Christ's sufficiency and merit, and that we would more deeply lean on him and rely on him than ever before. And therefore, walk out of this building today with awesome freedom that we are accepted by our Holy Father through the merits of Jesus, in whose name we pray and of whom we sing. Amen.